This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Genesis chapter 22, if you want to find that spot in your Bible, let me encourage you to have a Bible, get it out, whether it's on your device uh, or it's... um, your own, your own Bible that you brought with you or one that you borrow from us that's underneath the blue seats or in the back of some of the green ones. Find Genesis chapter 22, which is on page 17 in those Bibles, and I encourage you to have that. We're going to be there in just a minute. Uh, welcome, guests. Man, there's a bunch of you here. We are parked to the max. Every spot in the lot is full, and we're parked all the way down the street. And uh, so that's always exciting. We're having communion today. It's a really great day, isn't it? And it's not raining, amen? All right, yeah. If you were here yesterday, um, I hope you're kind of like a duck, and if you enjoyed that. Abraham and Sarah, we're doing a series for our guests in Hebrews chapter 11. We're still with Abraham and Sarah for one more Sunday today. And we've gone through their story. They waited for 25 years. All those years they waited for Isaac to arrive, and she arrived when Sarah, mom, was 90 years old. She gave birth to Isaac. Their faith became sight when he was born. You understand that? Their faith, we sing about that. Their faith became sight when he was born. They had prayed and they had hoped, and there he was, and they laughed, the Bible tells us. But God, their faith has been tested for 25 years But now God's going to test their faith to the max when Isaac is in his late teens. It says in verse 17, beginning verse 17 in chapter 11 of Hebrews, it's up on the screen for you. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises, Abraham, was offering up his unique son, Isaac, about whom it had been said, in Isaac your seed will be called He considered God, Abraham did. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead, from which he also got him back as an illustration. Now, here's a question I want us all to ask ourselves today. Here's a question. How can faith ever be proven if it isn't tested? How can faith ever be proven if it isn't tested. You know, some of you guys, you like those cars with all the horsepower under the hood. And the, and the manufacturer will tell you it can do zero to 60 in blank point blank seconds. You believe that for the most part, but Steve, you really don't believe it until you test it, all right? Coming down Collington Road, how fast can I go? How can faith ever be proven if it isn't tested? To understand this passage again, we need to turn back to the story here in Genesis 22. To get the context, Abraham now is 117 years old. Sarah is 108. That makes Isaac 17 or 18. I want you to follow with me as I read. I'm going to start reading verse 1 down through right now, verse 14. I might stop a bunch of times in between, all right? After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, 
your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. This test that Abraham is going through uh, is, is to sacrifice the very one God had promised. And it seems if, you know, you read this thing, especially if you're reading it for the very first time and this story for the very first time, you're thinking, man, God, what a contradiction. You're contradicting yourself. Seems like you're contradicting your promise. Isaac, or Abraham, now that you have your son, you've had him now for 17 years to love and care for. The one I promised you for all those years, now that he's here, He's growing up, he's becoming a fine young man. Kill him. That's what God said. Never mind that he, don't argue, he's not, you know, well, God, he's, he, never mind that he's young. Never mind that he hasn't married. Never mind that he hasn't had children yet. Just do as I say. And if you don't know the story, you might say, well, here's one place in the Bible where God contradicts himself. But it isn't. But here's one thing that God is doing. God is going to use this test. He's going to put everything that he has promised Abraham through Isaac, he's going to put everything on the line to prove once again that God fulfills his promises. We just sang about, you've never failed me yet. Abraham would love that song, by the way. Think about it, the whole rest of the biblical story from this point in Genesis all the way through to through Revelation, really, the whole point, the whole rest of the biblical story, including the greatest story ever told when Jesus came and suffered and died for our sins, the whole biblical story comes down to this promise that God had given Abraham that said, through Isaac, the whole world will be blessed. Through Isaac, nations will come up. Through Isaac, your descendants will be as the sands on the beach and the stars in the heavens. Through Isaac, and now God's saying, he has no children, go ahead and kill him. Does that make sense to you? I don't know that it made sense to Abraham, but that's not the point. And do you ever wonder, and God's having this conversation with Abraham, we don't know where Sarah is at the moment, but do you wonder if Abraham went over to Sarah and said, hey, Sarah, I got, got a word from God this morning. He wants me to take Isaac down to some place called Moriah and put him up on a mountain and kill him. Do you ever wonder if he even told Sarah what God now expected of him? And if this is faith in action, which we'll see that it is, you can easily see why faith, faith and trust are synonymous because that's what's going to happen in this story. Verse 3. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, they've been traveling for three days now. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac In his hand, he took the fire and the sacrificial knife, and the two of them walked on together. There was no arguing with God. Go to Moriah. No deal-making. But, well, God, if, 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 how about if we do this instead, you know? 
No deal making with God. He even, it says, he even split the wood for the fire that would fully consume the sacrifice of his son. Abraham did that. It took them three days of traveling to get there. And you think with me as they're doing this, they're traveling. Three days on the third day. There, there is plenty of time in three days for Abraham to back out, isn't there? There's plenty of times for Abraham to say, you know what, I just don't know that I can do this. There's plenty of time for Abraham to think he's convinced God of another plan. Plenty of time. There's plenty of time for young Isaac to say, hey, Dad, where are we going and why? I mean, he sees the firewood. He knows they're probably going to have a fire somewhere, but where are we going and why? But apparently Abraham left Isaac in the dark about their purpose, and I would think probably for a good reason, because three days would have been plenty of time for Isaac in the dead of night to get up out of his sleeping bag and say, I'm out of here. Who doesn't think Isaac wouldn't have run for his life? There are two words here in this story for the very first time. See, there is a principle, you Bible students, you need to know this. There's a principle in, in interpreting and understanding the scripture that tells us that the very first occurrence of a word in the Bible often sets the pattern for how that word is used in the rest of the Bible. There are two biblical firsts in this passage. In verse 2, we see the word love for the very first time in the Bible. Doesn't that seem strange? I mean, we're already in chapter 22. This is the first time love appears in the scriptures. And then in verse five, the first time we see the word worship. So we learn something here about love and we learn something here about worship that carries on through the rest of the word of God. Abraham's love for his son Isaac is a picture of the love God had for his only begotten son, Jesus. And the sacrifice of Isaac was a picture of the greatest act of worship when Jesus self-sacrificed, he gave his all to accomplish God's will. They're going to Moriah, God tells them. Moriah is a mountain range, and it's the mountain range upon which the city of Jerusalem is located. You probably are familiar with the term the Temple Mount. It's on one of those hills in the Moriah Range. There's another hill that you're familiar with on the Moriah Range as well, and that's a hill called the Mount of Olives. There's another hill that you're familiar with on the Moriah Range, and it's called Golgotha, the place of the skull. All on Moriah, in that mountain range there surrounding and including Jerusalem, Jesus would be crucified on one of those hills. Maybe this very hill. Taking the firewood off the back of the donkey, Abraham then takes the firewood and he puts it on the back of Isaac, his son. And that reminds you and me, of the burden that Christ carried through the streets of Jerusalem on his way to Mount Calvary when he carried a heavy wooden cross to Calvary that would serve as the place of sacrifice. And the two of them, Abraham and Isaac, just the two of them, walked up the hill. A lot of dads here this morning. I cannot think of a harder thing for any father to do than what Abraham believes he's about to do. Can you? I cannot think of anything. And, and those of us who are fathers, uh, uh, probably 100% of us would say, I'd rather kill myself than kill my son. God, why? 
Verse seven. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, my father, and he replied, here I am, my son. Isaac said, the wood, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? He's a bit puzzled. He's wondering, what is dad up to? I mean, dad's 117 years old. You know, has he totally lost it? What's going on here, dad? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. And when they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abraham built the altar and, and there and arranged the wood. Now here's what I find amazingly fascinating. Again, he's 117, and he's got this 17-year-old son. Who do you think's quicker? Who do you think's stronger? He bound his son Isaac. Apparently, Isaac allowed this to happen. Right? Isaac could have run. Isaac could have knocked his dad out, shoved him down the mountainside. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said it twice. Make sure you, he, you know, he's 117-year-old ears. I'm sure it was loud. He replied, here I am. He's got this knife up in the air. Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up, and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. Those of you Hebrew scholars, you know one of the names of God in the Old Testament, Jehovah Jireh. That's what Abraham said. The Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Well, Isaac, he's curious. No doubt he's seen dad offer sacrificial lambs to God before, but man, dad, didn't you forget something? And Abraham's answer is one of the great phrases in all the Bible because it expresses exactly what Jesus did on the cross and what we're going to remember here this morning when we have communion. They built the altar from stones laying around on the mountain. They took these stones and they made this altar and then Isaac is bound, his hands and his feet tied and old Abraham struggles, I'm sure, to lift his son onto the wood. And one of the most dramatic moments must be in all the scripture, I can't think of any, any more dramatic moment than this. And there's some dramatic moments in the Bible, aren't there? God calls out to Abraham as he's about to bring down the knife to cut Isaac's throat. He was stopped by the Lord. Abraham had passed the test. But there was this altar, and it's ready for sacrifice. And there 
Unbeknownst to them before, in a thicket nearby, God had prepared a substitute, an innocent life to exchange for Isaac that day. Abraham's words in verse 8 were prophetic, not only for what transpired that day, but for what would transpire on a Passover day thousands of years later when he said God himself will provide a lamb. We don't even have to provide the sacrifice. God provides it for us. And it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Wasn't that a great prophetic statement from Abraham? Right here, God's gonna provide the sacrifice. It was prophetic, prophetic about the provision Christ made for us when he was sacrificed on a mountain in the same area for our sins. Now, let's take another look at Hebrews eleven. 17. I want you to read that. Read that verse with me. It's up on the screen for you. Read it with me. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was offering up his unique son. His unique son. Reminds me of the phrasing in John 3.16 that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten, his uniquely born son. While the trial is yet in promise, in progress, as they're walking up to Moriah, as they're leaving their home, Abraham, what this verse tells us is Abraham had already offered up his son in his mind. It was a done deal. Before they ever got to Moriah, by the act of his obedient will through faith in God, this offering was already settled in Abraham's heart. The perfect tense in the Greek there in Hebrews 11 indicates that as far as Abraham was concerned, the sacrifice was complete before they ever got to Moriah. There was a real offering, but not a real death for Isaac. But there was a death in that the ram took Isaac's place. And then again in verse 19, it says, he considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead, from which he also got him back as an illustration. Abraham offered up Isaac, expecting his death, because he believed God was able to raise him from the dead. Abraham had never seen a resurrection from the dead. Never heard of that before. Yet he believed God could do it. And he knew even if I kill my son, God can raise him from the dead. Even if the Lord had not stopped him, Abraham knew God is good on his promises and that could only mean Isaac's going to be raised from the dead. And this then, of course, becomes a a picture of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It's a great picture, a great study of, of the communion table of what we're about to do here. We have here two sets of trays. One contains some little cups of juice. Another contains some bread. And we're going to pass those out in just a moment. And I'm going to explain to you what they mean, that the bread uh, symbolizes the body of Christ that will be nailed to the cross, and the cups symbolize his blood that was shed for all of us. And we're going to ask you to, as Jesus said, to partake of this in remembrance of him. 
he said that to his disciples. And so please listen very closely to me because I don't want you to make a mistake here today. He said that to his disciples. In fact, when he, when he passed these around and they ate and drank, he had dismissed one of the 12. He had dismissed Judas. Why? Because Judas did not belong in this group. Judas was not a believer. So Judas was not there. And so the, the wording of the New Testament from the Apostle Paul tells us that this is for those of us who know Christ as Savior. And we have a lot of guests here today, and I don't know your background. I don't know if you go to church every Sunday. It makes no difference. The matter is, have I sometime in my life trusted Jesus Christ as my own personal Savior? I did that when I was 10 years old. I kept hearing this preacher preach and tell these messages about Jesus and about what he had done for us. And he kept saying, what you need to do in your life is accept him as your Savior. And I knew I'd never done that. I'd been to church my whole life of 10 years. I believed in God, but that's not what this is about. This is about trust in Jesus and the sacrifice that he made on the cross and that it was for you and that it was for me. He died as our substitute. God provided the substitute for us. And if you can say, yes, I have believed that, there's been a time in my life when I was born again, when I accepted Christ as my Savior, I put my trust in him, then we invite you uh, to participate in this. So I'm going to ask our, our ushers if they'll come. I'm going to have a word of prayer. And then we're going to uh, pass the bread and the, and the cups about. And then we'll all partake of them together. If this morning you say, I don't know that Jesus is my Savior, this is all new to me, then just pass the trays on. You don't need to participate by taking. Participate by watching and by listening. Father, we thank you for the bread that we're about to eat that reminds us of the body of the Son of God, your Son, your unique Son, who had never done anything to deserve death, but he took upon himself our sin on the cross. And he who is rich became poor that we might become the righteousness of God. Amazing. Thank you for the picture of Abraham and Isaac. Thank you for the body that was nailed. Thank you for the blood that was shed because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So this morning we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want to read the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as he, to the Corinthian church, explained what we're about to do. He said, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And I'm so glad that not only did the apostles pass this on to the first century churches, but it became the responsibility of the churches from each generation to pass it on to the next. How do we know to do this? Well, it says it in the Bible, but it's also been passed on to us by our fathers. Passed it on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, passed a cup around. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant 
it replaces the old covenant that God had made with his people through Moses, through the law. This is something new. New covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Here at Nags Head Church, we don't have a lot of traditions, but we do have a few. One of our traditions, our practices, is when we have the Lord's Supper, and we do that about once a month, we receive an offering, a very special offering. In addition to the regular offering, we receive an offering to meet the benevolent needs of people in our community, here in our church first, and then those outside of our church in our community who may have some very special needs brought on by medical emergencies, by loss of a job, whatever it might be. And uh, we have this fund that we keep, and we have it ready to assist people with their needs. And so we take an offering up when we finish communion. So we're gonna do that right now. Our ushers are coming to do that. If you will, pass your cups uh, to the end of the aisle, and uh, they'll also receive those from you. So have those ready for them as well, if you would. Father, would you take this gift that's given now? There are people that have needs. There are people, Father, that are hurting. Some are right here in our own church, and some are outside of our church, but uh, we want to show the love of Christ through what we are able to do for them in a monetary way. So thank you for letting us do that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So what does the story teach us? Let me give you some points, just some practical application from the story of Abraham offering Isaac on the mountain. First of all, here's what it teaches you, Christian. God will put my faith to the test. None of us are exempt. If we have faith, none of us are exempt from it being tested. Sometimes the test will be God telling you or me, let's be honest, we're learning from Abraham here, he's going to tell us to do something that we do not want to do. When we tell God, we'll obey him as long as he tells us what he tells us to do is agreeable to us, we stop living by faith. That's not faith. See, it's easy to do what we want, isn't it? It's easy to do what we like to do, isn't it? Oh, yeah. The hardest test of faith comes when what God expects seems unreasonable to our minds. And I can't imagine, again, going back to the story, I can't imagine anything that would seem more unreasonable to any father in this world than what God told him to do. It may involve for you and me, God's not going to ask you to sacrifice your son. Let me tell you, go ahead and say that. That's not going to happen. There's no more sacrifice. It's been done. But God may say, I need you to make a move. Uh, change a career. It might be the decision to stick with this marriage when all of your friends are urging you to get out of it. Now, let me say there are biblical reasons to end a marriage, but would you agree with me? Divorce in our culture, in our society, has become way too easy 
for us to tackle, for us to take on. If you become a Christian, meaning your faith has found a resting place in Christ alone, you can expect God to test your faith. And by the way, I think one of the greatest ways our faith is tested, at least from my own personal experience, is through finances. And it's not always he tests our faith when we're, when we're running out of finances and we have little finances. Sometimes it's the opposite. Finances can test our faith. Uh, don't expect when God tests your faith, please don't expect it to always be a pop quiz. Oh, that was easy. Bring on the next test, God. Don't ever say that to him. It's like saying, God, teach me patience. Be careful when you pray for that. Second thing from this story we can learn is that obedience is fulfilled first in my heart. Before obedience ever becomes action, before Abraham ever took that first step toward Moriah from his home, from his tent, he had already in his heart offered up his son. It was a done deal. Obedience begins first here. Abraham's heart had already learned obedience before God spoke to him to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham's, <coughs> excuse me, whole life in the past, you know, 40-some years has been learning to obey God and trust God. He'd already learned those things. And probably like you and me, there are little things every day that test us, aren't they? Little, they sometimes they're little things. Sometimes they're little people that test our faith. But as we put our faith into practice in the smaller things, there are things that we might not expect. There are things that we might not want to happen, but they show up every day as we interact with others. And we, as we take our faith and we put it into practice in the smaller things, here's what we're doing. I spoke a few weeks ago and I said faith is like a muscle. And for a muscle to be stronger, it has to be exercised. Now, if you were to go over to, to Buddy and uh, say, Buddy, can I, st- I want to start working out this week. I need to build some muscle. And you go and meet Buddy at his gym. And Buddy sits there in, in, on all these machines, and he shows you what they are. Um, and Buddy's, I don't think, Bud, that you're going to say to any of us here, okay, we're going to start with a bench press, and you put 300 pounds on there for me. You won't do that, will you? No, you start with smaller things. You smart with the, start with what you can handle maybe, but you smart with, start with the smaller things and you build up this faith muscle. So Abraham's obedience church did not start that next morning when he started splitting wood. It was fulfilled first in his heart and then it showed up when he split the wood. We could see it then. He was ready before that. God said to him that his action of obedience proved that he feared God. What does that mean to fear God? To fear God means three things. It means that you acknowledge him as sovereign. Sovereign means in control. Sovereign means he's my Lord. I acknowledge that you are sovereign in control. Not only of me, God, but of everything in this world. You're sovereign. It means that I trust him implicitly. Even when it doesn't make sense to me, I trust him. And then I obey him without question. Those three things indicate that we fear 
God. By the way, it doesn't mean I'm afraid of God. Acknowledgement, trust, obedience. And so another point here this morning for you is hang in there. You never know how or when God's going to come through. You never know. When did God come through for Abraham? When he picked up that knife and was about to kill his son. At the very last second. Abraham didn't know how this story would end. He just knew God's promise was going to be fulfilled in Isaac. I promised you a long time ago, Abraham, that you would have a son, and through this son, all the nations of the world would be blessed. He didn't know all what that meant, but it was through this son that Jesus would come. He didn't know how all that was going to happen, but he knew it was God's promise. And up to this point, there's no, as I said earlier, no recorded case of a a resurrection in the world's history. But again, back at verse 5 of Genesis 22, Abraham said to his men, to his two servants who were there with him, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship, and then we will come back to you. Did you get that? The proof of the reality of his faith was what he did here. James used this story in his letter. He used this story to illustrate this principle. James chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you faith from my works. Because faith is not something that you can see. The only way we can see someone's faith is by what they do. Can you have faith without works? I'll say yes. But wouldn't you rather have a living, vibrant faith that produces action in your life? Somewhere there is this truth of faith being shown by works. But it has to be Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 as well. Are you familiar with those verses? For by grace are you saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's God's gift not from works, so that no one can boast. But without a living, working faith, think with me, how in the world can we ever demonstrate to anyone else in this world the wonderful change and power God brings to our life? Because we believed, because we had faith. Works don't create faith. Write this down somewhere. Works don't create faith. Faith creates works. Don't put the cart before the horse. To demonstrate saving faith is why God leaves us here when we believe and doesn't immediately take us to heaven. The next verse in Ephesians 2 says, we are his creation created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time that we should walk in them. Our, another place in scripture talks about us working out our salvation. again, it doesn't mean that our salvation is dependent upon our works. It simply says when we have salvation, we work it out. We do so that others can see and have the opportunity to hear the gospel. Our working out our salvation shows that we're growing in faith, that we're being matured in our faith and responding to tests and trials and tribulation with faith is how we put our faith to practice. Great story from Abraham, isn't it? I'm challenged by it. 
because I want to know, okay, God, if you call me to do something totally unexpected, totally out of my, I, I, one of these things that we could say, God, I never saw it coming. But yet, God, this is what you want me to do? Challenges me. I hope it challenges you as well. I want you to stand with me and bow your heads with me in prayer. If you are in a crisis of faith in your life, maybe something's going on and it's overwhelming you, maybe it's causing you to doubt God, doubt his word, perhaps you've not yet put your faith in Christ alone, our pastors are going to be here at the front at the conclusion of this prayer and the song. And we would love to talk with you. I asked Luke to come and with our heads bowed and our eyes closed and I said, let's pull one out and dust it off. Because the words of this simple chorus from an old hymn, I think perfectly illustrate what happened with Abraham and Isaac that day. I want you to think about these words and ask yourself this question. Like Abraham, who was asked to surrender everything that meant so much to him. Am I willing to do the same? This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.